This is the More to the Story podcast with Dr. Andy Miller. We hope you guys enjoyed today's conversation. Welcome to the More to the Story podcast with Andy Miller. I serve as the Vice President for Academic Affairs at Wesley Biblical Seminary and Professor of Historical Theology. And I'm so excited that you've been able to come along on today's podcast. This is a special kind of edition. I, I changed my schedule to accommodate this episode because I had an opportunity to bring together a couple of scholars who've been influenced by a person who was just recently promoted to glory, and that's Dr. Billy Abraham, who served on my doctoral committee at SMU Perkins School of Theology. So uh, he was a, a huge figure in the Wesleyan evangelical movement and somebody who made a great impression on me. And here's what I want you to do. Like, if you've never heard of him, I encourage you to just look him up, maybe even uh, YouTube him or Google him, find some articles he's written, or he has some great presentations on YouTube. He has a wonderful, uh, like a short book, kind of an intro book that I recommend to people it is a book written in the mid nineties called Waking Up from Doctrinal Amnesia. We mentioned several other books in it, in this podcast. And I have a few friends who also studied with him, people who, who in, were closer to him and more aware of his influence. And so we worked through this in, on that podcast, but I think you'll see in this podcast, not just something where we're just talking about somebody who's a great influence on us, but the type of Christians and leaders and mentors we are all called to be. So I hope you'll enjoy today's podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Wesley Biblical Seminary. We have a whole range of degree programs and options for people who are trying to become trusted leaders who serve faithful churches. And that means it's not just for people training to become pastors. It's for lay people as well. We have a variety of programs. So if you go to wbs.edu, you'll find how we're helping people become trusted leaders for faithful churches. Now, in addition to that, we also have another sponsor, and that is William Roberts, who is a financial planner. He's a pastor's kid who's somebody who understands, particularly people serving in ministry, how he can help them achieve their financial goals. You can go to williamhroberts.com and find out how he can serve you. He also you know, is particularly gifted with helping people who serve in the Salvation Army, employees and officers in the Salvation Army who are trying to plan for the future and with those unique situations dealing with parsonages and quarters and how people are compensated. So check Bill out. And we're really thankful to have him as a sponsor. Interesting enough, Bill is really involved with Baylor University. His kids go there, and that's where uh, Dr. Billy Abraham last served. Um, kind of in his retirement, he was starting a new initiative at Baylor University just before he was promoted to glory a few weeks ago. It was really a gut punch to many of us in the Wesleyan theological tradition as we saw him as kind of like the champion of this movement intellectually. But you'll get a little bit of that on today's podcast as we admire and thank God for the influence of Dr. Billy Abraham. Thanks for checking out the More to This Story podcast. God bless you. Well, welcome to the More to the Story podcast. Today is a special episode. It's distinct and one that I didn't have planned, but in light of a mentor and friend being promoted to glory, and that's language I use from the Salvation Army, um, I've, I felt like it would be helpful for my audience to get a sense of the life and ministry and scholarship of Dr. Billy Abraham, who just less than two weeks ago went to be with Jesus, and we're thankful for his life. And so I brought on uh, some friends, some friends that are new to me, but people who were connected intimately to Billy's life. They were his students, they were his peers, and people who maybe even under, certainly understand his life and influence better than me. So I'm going to just go around and I'll introduce each of them. They are Dr. Jason Victors, Dr. David Watson, Dr. Justice Hunter. 
Um, Doctors Watson and Hunter both teach at United Theological Seminary, and Jason teaches at Asbury Theological Seminary. They were all students at Southern Methodist University and did PhDs there, and um, not all of them were directly under the advisory of, um, well, what's the right word there? They weren't under the exact tutelage and their dissertations of Billy Abraham, but some of them were. So I'm interested to hear more about this. So I want to just go around and if you guys would just tell us the way that you interacted with Dr. Abraham and what his influence was on your life. And then we'll get into some specifics of his work. So Jason, would you start us off? Yeah, sure. Um, so I was on my way to, I thought I was on my way to, to, to do doctoral work at, at Princeton. Um, and Bruce McCormack was actually the person that, that sent me down to Dallas to talk to Billy. Uh, I, I didn't know who Billy was um, and had never read anything by him. Interesting. Uh, he just thought that my, my interests lined up better with Billy's than his own. And so I uh, left New Jersey and went to Dallas and uh, met. And, and Billy was incredibly gracious, you know, welcomed me in his office. We talked for a couple of hours by the time I was done. Uh, I realized Bruce was right that that there was a lot of alignment in our interests, and uh, Billy had just published Canon and Criterion in Christian okay. Theology, uh, and so um, I went back and and read that and uh, was more convinced than ever, and then uh, went to SMU and did my work under him uh, in systematic theology. Uh, served as his assistant, assistant to the outward chair for a couple of years while I was there, uh, which meant co-teaching some stuff with him, mainly in Houston, a little bit in Dallas uh, at, the, at Perkins Houston Extension. Um, I could go on uh, in terms of just personal relationship after the dissertation. We we became pretty close friends, um, and uh, he officiated at both my wedding and my son's baptism. Uh, awesome. So, and then we we just have we did several book projects and things together over the years, and uh, so he's he's a dear friend. Yeah, awesome. Justice, how about you? Uh, similarly, I was I met Billy through SMU as a, as a doctoral student. I actually I actually went to SMU to write with Bruce Marshall, um, who's a, who's a eminent Catholic theologian who worked in medieval scholasticism, which is what I was really interested in. Uh, but the thing that was really attractive to me about SMU was that you had Bruce there in that tradition, and then then you had uh, who who was, in my opinion, and remains in my opinion, the pre, the preeminent Methodist theologian. Um, and Billy. And so those two, you know, they just sort of put me through my paces over over four years there and, and, uh, and, you know, have continued that anytime you see Billy, see, see Billy after going through that type of training, it's just sort of you just jump right back into, you know, fighting tooth and nail for your position and, and enjoying <laughs> everything all along. So um, we've, we've done, we've just kind of continued that friendship and, and mentorship. Um, along from that point yeah this is probably 2011 is when i started in the doctoral program so, so, so about 10 years i got to enjoy uh, a close yeah. relationship with so with you and jason both to get now interesting about your stories i may be wrong but neither of you came from a united methodist background like uh growing up at least right maybe you were uh i think jason were you nazarene and justice you're a free methodist then you came united methodist now justice you're a catholic i mean so like an interesting like little movement here but uh what did he was he in part what drew you when you I'm not sure where Jason you are these days uh to toward Methodism like United Methodism in that sense 
Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I'm not sure where I'm at either. Um, <laughs> Me either. Um, so, yeah, I was sort of in between uh, the holiness movement and Methodism growing up. Um, yeah. Kind of the deep background on my mom's side was was Methodist, uh, and the deep background on my father's side was actually Wesleyan holiness, uh, the Wesleyan okay. denomination. Yeah. And um, and then I kind of followed a girl to a Nazarene college out of high okay. school. So it was very noble, high-minded <laughs> kind of stuff. Um, and that's how I, I fell in for a season with the Nazarenes. Uh, I was uh, following their women around. And um, <laughs> But it's just a joke, of course. Um, no, and and then by the time I got to Dallas, I I, I had figured out that uh, there were some aspects of Nazarene culture, for lack of a better term, that that I didn't think were going to work for me long term. And then Billy, I think, sort of was he's he's always been eager to recruit people to Methodism, and um, so he made that pretty easy uh, for me. Uh, but I do want to add one quick footnote and just say that that one of the things I we get into this later, I'm sure yeah, one yeah. Of the things I most about him was that just, you know, he, he sort of embodied uh, ecumenicity. Yes, yes, he, yes. He really um, never met uh, a person, regardless of the branch of the Christian family, you know, the, the Christian religion that came out of that he didn't, he wasn't able to sit down and talk with. Uh, and we could say more about that, but I Bye. really just instilled a love in, in everybody that knew him for things like Eastern Orthodoxy, Catholicism. But he's just so generous. I mean, that's right. So, in my own tradition, like, so I, I brought that up because I felt like kind of like holiness movement denominations like it, it, i'm part of the salvation army most of my audience would know that but in that that truth what i found was i found billy helping me see the greater ecumenical tradition or like uh eastern orthodoxy but at the same time he loved the salvation army and you you see him interacting in the logic of evangelism he, and you know some of it he would press me on it he would sometimes act like i wasn't a christian because i wasn't baptized but beyond that you know we, and maybe you guys feel that way too i don't know but uh so we, we would we would have these great great company. but he loved the kind of like brass band type of getting gritty sort of stuff <laughs> and he called me mr salvation army you know so i i would come in in uniform so okay just i don't i don't mean to take us down that track too i mean is that fair what i was saying like kind of like this ecumenical you want to add anything and i'll get to you in a second here david sorry yeah i think i, I think when i came when i met billy i was kind of i was he was friendly to where i was at on those types of questions if that makes sense yeah. he was he was interested in um i i became actually i became united methodist thanks to david watson Oh, there you go. Part I'd, I'd grown up well. Thanks to two things, I, I moved to the University of Dayton, and there are no Free Methodist churches in Dayton, Ohio, and um, and so then you know I thought, well, I'll, maybe I'll go back upstream. My grandparents were were um, were United Methodist. Free Methodism was just a one one uh, generation experiment in the in the Hunter like Hunter and Hamilton legacy that my parents are from. They were both United Methodists when they met. So anyway, I went, so I landed back in the United Methodism at David's church because I was a doctoral student here or not a master's student at the University of Dayton. And, and I connected with David and Jason. I don't know how I connected with you guys somehow because Jason was at United at the time. Yeah. But I do think that, you know, to be impacted by David Watson and Jason Vickers is to be impacted by Billy Abraham, you know, <laughs> uh, secondary, secondary causes as the time <laughs> 
Which just is for the record, if, if I'm not if David I'm not mistaken, okay. if I'm not mistaken, Justice, I think we met at Dayton University of Dayton. I think when Griffiths, Paul Griffiths, and Marshall were doing something there that Levering put together. That it, sounds that right. Sound, I think that's when I met you the first. Met Matthew time. Levering was the source. Yep, the connection. Yep. So anyway, but I met Billy. He was very sympathetic. I had been a student at Asbury Theological Seminary, right. and um, I was interested in. I went in interested in Karl Bart. Um, um, my judgment improved, and I got less interested in Bart and more interested in the. <laughs> Christianity and yeah. uh, so, but by the time I finished there I didn't know how to go about studying early Christianity so I just applied to a bunch of Catholic schools and that's what led me to the University of Dayton so already I had this you know interest in kind of um, and and growing sense of the need to ground that kind of evangelical Christian tradition I was grown in which is sort of a generic right. evangelical Christianity in deeper wells and that was that's what I was looking for and Billy was really helpful in helping helping me think through what that would look like um, and how to how to conceive that. Yeah, beautiful. All right, David. Sorry to keep you keep you waiting here. The my third guest here, no, Dr. No David Watson, and you're a New Testament scholar, so you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, okay, that would mean you'd work with Billy Abraham at SMU, but obviously you did, and you did some unique work together. You know, it, it's interesting. Um, you know, Billy got me interested in epistemology. So yeah. kind of the study of how you know what you know. And and I'll never be an expert in epistemology. I know enough to be dangerous or anything like that. But I, I was I was speaking to um, a very, I won't say who, but a really well known renowned biblical scholar at one time. And, and um, he said, What are you doing? And I said, Well, right now, I'm taking a course in epistemology. And he looked at me, and he said, Well, you'll probably be a terrible biblical scholar. <laughs> and and I think what he meant was, once you start digging underneath the presuppositions of your guild, uh, it kind of messes you up. And that sort of did happen for me, that a lot of sort of the presuppositions in biblical studies, um, especially at that time period, kind of late 90s, early 2000s, you know, just they didn't seem right to me. And so I was always questioning these things. I probably drove everyone crazy, actually. I was studying with a very fine biblical scholar, Joette Bassler. I got a great education from her. Um, but, but actually, I, I met Billy way before then. Um, I probably was 23 years old. I was in his evangelism course. And um, I just I had just come straight out of my undergraduate degree. And so, you know, I'd taken some courses like in, in Bible. I went to Texas Tech University. But if you take Bible courses at a at a state school, you know, they they really can be. Again, these epistemological questions and metaphysical questions that you're not sophisticated enough to think through, at least I wasn't sophisticated enough to think through when right. I was 21, 22 years old, you know, they can actually be very damaging to your faith if they're not framed in the right way. Right. And so I, I was kind of, I came into seminary kind of under the impression that sort of historical Christianity was outdated, outmoded, and not intellectually responsible. And wow. Billy disabused me of that notion <laughs> quite forcefully, actually. <laughs> and then, you know, over a number of years, just in conversations with him really taught me to love the faith of the church. Right. He, he was very patient and he would, 
um, Billy all, here's the thing about Billy. He was one of the most optimistic people I've ever met in my life. And he believed that there was no one, no one that he could not win over to his position given enough time. And with me, he certainly did do that in a number of ways. Yeah, it's beautiful. You know, he he would do this by, I think like the, the, the bit I picked up from him is like, he could argue somebody else's position better than they could. <laughs> and he was so, he was so in, in part, like watching him on the campus at Perkins, it was a delight to see the way his colleagues who didn't share the same theology as him would, it, would just loved him and how he could, you know, try to win them. It's like he was put just in the perfect environment. I'd love to hear about some of our, your stories about, um, uh, being being in debate with him <laughs> i'm sure there's something like it, it, david what what do you have some uh funny story about that <laughs> i mean i i thought you know like when you're young you try on a lot of different theological positions and see how they fit you're trying on ideas and that and i, I remember going to dinner with him one time and i told him i was going to become an open theist and then it was on it was like um it was like the the battle of the bulge but but the battle was entirely one-sided and and he he just completely um i'll just say he was quite convincing and compelling in his uh position that i should not adopt open theism as a position and um and i'm glad that he did that for me i mean billy you know i as i wrote elsewhere billy in his critique he he could be devastating uh, and sometimes brutal, but, but I, but I want to qualify the way that I say that. I mean, when he was, when he was debating with someone like me, who clearly was not his intellectual equal, <laughs> he would be very forceful in his, um, presentation, but at the same time, he was never mean in his presentation. Mm -hmm. yes. You know, he was yes. not condescending. Um, he didn't speak down to you but he did present his argument in ways that were undeniably forceful. And I, I appreciated that about him. That's a great way to say it. Yeah. Jason. Yeah. I just two quick footnotes to things David has said. Um, and I'd almost, and I'm a little bit curious maybe to get justice's reaction to the second one, especially um, the first one, David mentioned, you know, Billy uh, Billy's optimism. And I think that's really something worth um saying even more about that it wasn't just about his optimism related to individual persons, um, be it David or someone else, but but optimism about the church, about the future. And he sort of had this irrepressible kind of confidence or faith in the providence of God that mm. you never know, he'd always say things like, you just never know what will happen, you know, in time. And so you, he refused to give up, not just on people, but on the church or say Methodism, even though, you know, it's so right. tempting to me to, to, to give up on it. He, he just refused to give up on the church or Methodism or other things. The second footnote for me to David's comments would just be about the open theism bit um here and this is where I, i'm curious to get justice's thoughts on this um you know one of the things i always appreciated about billy is that he you know you would you would think 
because he had this reputation for being the great champion of orthodoxy or whatever. Um, but there was another sense in which he was always uh, careful to say that, that he considered himself a classical small L liberal. Right, right. And that what this meant was that he was interested in all good arguments. And, and Justice has just written about this, actually. That's why I'm wanting to punt it over to him here. Uh, and, and so I think even for something like Boston personalism way back in the early 20th century in, in the history of Methodist theology, he loved Borden Parker Bound. I mean, he actually read Bound, loved Bound, wrote about Bound in some early work in the Wesleyan Theological Journal. Uh, he, he was, and I think even something like open theism uh, if you were expecting him just to show up now, in the, the conversation with David was was very, something you know very specific. But if you asked him to come and 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 debate, you know, a committed open theist, you know, he he was he was going to be he was first going to try to find a way to be appreciative or to discover, you know, is there some aspect or or part of truth here that they've gotten their hands around that that we need to hear and be amenable to? Justice, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, as you're talking, I think that's right. I, I remember probably in the past couple of years, a couple of times, Billy and I, uh, him, him, uh, sort of, I think, baiting me um, with his praise, uh, praise of Borden Parker Bound, because he knows that I don't didn't care for him uh, much at all, um, <laughs> and and you know, I, I, in fact, I I remember him sort of at one point saying, just sort of grinning at me, and saying, you know, William Burt Pope is interesting, but who's a really really innovative thinker would be that Borden Parker bound, you know, uh, just, just, to, just to kind of get under my skin and see what I, how I'd react. Um, I think with Billy, you know, these types of reflections make me ask, you know, what's, what's the real, what was the real core of this man? You know, I think um, he, he has, he had this incredible intellectual gift. Um, it was an incredible instrument, but he deployed it in a way that was always in service to his commitment to the gospel. And so, you know, if David is someone who he's taken under his two religion is becoming, you know, um, um, attracted to open theism, as we all probably were at some point in seminary. I know, you know, I, I was, you know, flavor of the week, you know, when I was in <laughs> seminary, whatever I pulled off the shelf. But, um, you know, in that situation, Billy's gonna, he's gonna, he's, he was a, wise spiritual guide he's going to club that out of you if you need it clubbed out of you you know but if but if he's engaging a, you know someone who spent a long lifetime of reflection on this question and then and has made this sort of decided commitment to it well he's going to engage you differently um yeah. he can't speak that way to you but he's still going to try to draw you in uh to the fullness of of the, the christian vision of reality which i think at the end of the day billy did not think open theism um was able to manage, nor did he think Borden Parker Bound could, I, I don't think actually, because usually what he argued was that he had captured the spirit of, of Wesleyan piety um, that drove his seriously flawed philosophical ideas. <laughs> so I think that's really, that's really unique. You don't encounter the mind that, that, that works like that. You guys think that's right? I do think, it's, I think it's right, Justice. And I also, I also though want to highlight how fierce he could be in defense of the faith once and for all entrusted to the saints. Yeah, I, I've seen a couple of different times when scholars came in either for talks or colloquy who were really actually um, hostile 
openly hostile to attempting to subvert Orthodox Christianity. And um, he would he would come after them using all of his intellectual powers. Um, you know, I, I saw him and Bruce Marshall one time um, go after a philosopher whom I won't name, but uh, it, it was it was brutal to behold. I mean, it was quite something. <laughs> By the, by the way, Andy, uh, this is what this is what happens when you become a dean. Andy is you you can't name names anymore. Right? <laughs> I know there you go. Justice and I are free. We'll just name yeah, names yeah. all day. No so. Yeah, that's right. No way. Okay. I, one of Billy's favorite phrases. I've heard him say it. You know, a hundred times. He would he would always say. He talk about these situations. He say, "Well, if he wants a battle to the death, I'll give it to him, but it's not going to be my death." <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the things I felt like when when he passed away. Um, I always say this sense, particularly as it relates, and I have an interest in what's going on, even though I'm not a member of the United Methodist Church with the United Methodist Renewal and the, the WCA and the Global Methodist Church and kind of the Pan-Wesleyan movement. And, and his voice in the confessing movement um, and what he's done for the WCA, all of those things are really powerful. But I, I maybe this is just like an emotional concern that I have, but I've always felt like if we had Billy Abraham in the room, we, we had... We had like Michael Jordan, you know, it's like, like we, we have the best player now, rather not, rather not, that means like all of the publications stack up against somebody else's. I felt like rhetorically we would win. <laughs> like there would be somebody who would, who would defend it. Like, and, and maybe it's a bit of a security blanket, but I, I had this confidence in him in part because I experienced it myself in his office. And I, and honestly, there was a few times where I thought, you know, I had read um, Larry Wood introduced, I don't know if justice is your case, Larry Wood introduced me to uh, Canon Criteria and I worked way, my way through that. So by the time I got into Billy's office and, you know, I'm like 30 years old trying to, he, and he starts debating with me, I thought, was am I wrong? Because he's so convincing and so passionate. And then I saw he was just testing me. Like there was the very first time I got into argument, he's slamming his hands on the table, staring me down. And like, I'm like, what am I, I like, and nobody else is around. What am I supposed to do? Like, I thought, like, am I in the wrong place? I've already given money here. And, um, and, and then and then he just like leaned back. He folded his arms back. I wish I could do an Irish accent, but he just said, you know, it's grand to know you can defend yourself. You know, like he just, yeah. he just wanted to know that I can make it, you know. So yeah. I, I think there's something here what you all are saying about his ability to con bring context to the educational process. Like where you are, like how he engaged you now as scholars, as people in the discipline, how he engages somebody who is way down the line um, is different. David, you want to talk about that? Somebody like, I mean, you're, you're, you're working with uh, I mean, scholars on a regular basis, like trying to help yeah. people with their teachers. I know what you mean about a sense of security when he was in the room. Whatever room he was in, he was he was normally the smartest guy in the room, mm -hmm. and he thought with such incredible precision about things. And so, for me, Billy was a guy who, I mean, I didn't agree with Billy on everything, right? <laughs> but at the same time, he kept my theological compass calibrated to true north, mm. and I could call him and talk to him about theological questions or things I was having, you know, and, 
And, you know, they always, they, like, I believe that if you're an elder in the church, or ever, really every person in the church needs to be under the spiritual authority of someone else in the church. And for me, that was him. Mm. And so I can't call him now. Yeah. And I can't, you know, I just remember it was just a couple of years ago that he really changed my mind about, and we were having a discussion about the difference, about the essentially the status of the church's creedal tradition. Is this divine revelation or is this what he would call the sanctified reason of the church? And that conversation really affected the way I thought. And, you know, and, I, and I'm not uh, a neophyte at this work. I mean, I'm I'm getting old and I have been thinking about these things for a long time, but it, I appreciated having him there to help me see when I was missing things and not having that for me personally is going to be a loss. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But at the same time, it's a loss for the church. It's yeah. a loss for the church. I think Methodism has lost its best thinker. Yeah. I mean, it was the title of your article, Jason, I'll come to you in just a second. I mean, I'll, I'll give a link in the show notes to David's article. And I think all of us also reflected on a, in a firebrand piece too, but was it a Titan has fallen? What was it? A, a giant has fallen. Has fallen. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. that's a great way to describe it. Jason. Well, just, and this is, again, just kind of a little footnote on what David was saying there. I mean, I, you were asking about it, it, Billy as a teacher and, and yeah, yeah. you know, I think that he had um, a way of, of approaching people, uh, whether they were students or, you know, in some kind of official way or anybody really. Um, and I mean, I think his goal in a way was always to, to help people be the, the, the best version of themselves. Right. Uh, so if you take, say, Justice, you know, as, as a Roman Catholic, you know, uh, you know, he's going he's gonna to work to try to help you be the best Catholic you can be um, or, or that, that kind of thing. He, he sort of you didn't have to agree with Billy on everything. Um, it, and, and the other thing that just quickly comes to mind for me is that, you know, he always called himself a bog Irishman. And right. I, I think that to be from the bogs, you know, for him was this, it was a cultural thing. It was, but it, it, it made him kind of constitutionally uh, drawn to people in the, uh, in the church world, if you will. And, you know, that, that, were from similar places, you know, that, that weren't from what he, he might call it high up the candle places, but were yeah. low church or evangelicals, right. fundamentalists, people that were, you know, ridiculed, criticized. And he had a gift for Pentecostals. I mean, right. he was, he was deep for, he had a deep personal friendship with Donald Dayton. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think it kind of revolved around this a little bit. Dayton sort of being this uh, person who who really loved and and uh, worked within the holiness and Pentecostal world, um, you know what he called the riffraff, right? And and Billy, you know, I think they connected around that a little bit. And so all that to say, I think he had a, a special gift for um, 
helping those kind of people, you know, in some cases to find their voice, uh, to have courage, despite the fact that they might get, you know, ridiculed or whatever. That was just something I noticed about him over the years is he was really good about, about that sort of thing. And, and I think it, it had something to do with his cult, his own cultural background uh, from a, a rural town in the North of Ireland. Yeah, for sure. He was just a real master. Yeah. In the classroom, he was, he was just absolutely brilliant. I mean, just absolutely brilliant in the classroom. Yeah. I, I can't think, I mean, I can't think of anyone quite like him. He, I remember my, this might be my second year in a doctoral program. We did a, a, a doctoral seminar on philosophy of religion. And this was the, 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 every graduate student in the graduate program in religious studies was in this core seminar together, which meant there are people, you know, who are doing, you know, they're interested in Eastern religions. They're, you know, just sort of pure critical scholars think all this theological stuff is a bunch of riffraff, you know? Um, and at the time, you know, He's an analytic philosopher, so he's trained at Oxford in this English tradition, which is about as unfashionable philosophically for these uh, for this, this, this circle as yeah. possibly right. They're all want to read these you know French thinkers and right. German stuff, and Billy Billy has no interest in that whatsoever, you know personally. Um, but I watched him in that class. He he engaged one of my classmates who was like the most avid lover of all things French and critical that I've ever met in a way that brought him on board to the sort of um, discipline of thought. It, it didn't let him get off with any sort of, you know, the very intelligent guy, but didn't let him get by with any sort of trick, trickiness that some of these, some of these sort of critical, critical scholars can get by with. Billy, he's going to hold him to the fire on that, but he's going to engage him in a way to guide him into understanding what this other discipline was that he had no respect for before he met Billy, but came to have a deeper, much deeper respect for in the same class. So he would, he invested time uh, in that relationship amidst the class, the same class, um, my, my classmate um, who was, probably our brightest student and was working with Billy at the time would um, David Mahfoud is his name. He, he would, um, he would always want to engage the class because he was several steps down the road with Billy on the topics, you know, cause this was, this is wheelhouse or whatever. And Billy in that class would just constantly, constantly with David, just be like, shh, shh, you know, <laughs> wait, you know, um, you know, he was in control of the classroom. I mean, he was not right. free will classroom he knew what he was doing right. and he was on board and it as a result it enriched the conversation in a much greater way better than any other in, I, I i i took four of those core seminars and he was the only one who was anywhere near successful in that and he was wildly successful in doing that i would say and really a remarkable teacher it's like he had a, a plot in mind like it, like it, it wasn't just like a course schedule it was like he was taking somebody on a journey and an in, in, in inductive journey of discovery. Um, okay, I want to make sure to get a few other things in. Um, and I, maybe we could just hit these kind of like a, a it, it doesn't deserve, uh, I'm not giving enough credit and time for this, but I'd love to just hit a few of his areas with each of you. And it's, um, and, you know, and some of you have different special specializations in this area, but for instance, let's just talk about Wesley studies. So that's what's unique about Billy is here you have an analytic philosopher Right. And at the same time, he's talking about epistemology, 
He has this eclectic tradition. He comes in with respect for all kinds of levels of the church and can, can function. Like I could invite him into the Salvation Army to preach a revival and he would do great. I mean, people would love him. And mm -hmm. at the same time, you have like his kind of, I don't know if you trademark, so to speak, with canonical theism. Um, and then, so we have these various areas. Um, and, and then there's like the kind of practical side. But I'd like to just talk about Wesley studies for a second. What is it that this analytical philosopher, what's his a contribution to Wesley's studies? Jason, I'm going to hit you up first with this. I know like, and I'm not just talking about the fact that he would be somebody who would like, you know, maybe disagree with others about what the standard sermons are, that kind of thing. But I mean, what did this philosopher have to bring to Wesley's studies? I mean, I think before, you know, approaching it from his work in philosophy, I, I think for Billy, there was always a personal commitment to Wesley uh, that just stemmed from the role Wesley played in some of his own early spiritual formation, the sermons especially. So the, there was always a deep commitment there. Um, you know, I heard Billy say a lot over the years that, that reading Wesley's sermons at a particular time in his, his life as a student uh, was just very formative for him spiritually. And so I actually think he kind of regarded Wesley as a bit of a spiritual father. Uh, and, and, um, and so, I th and I think over time, that's how he would eventually talk about him. And, you know, he would, he would urge, um, Methodist to to approach him more along those lines than as some kind of, of major theological figure. And of course, he made a, a bunch of waves around that with his end of Wesleyan theology paper. Right. Famous article. Where, where he sort of wants to read Wesley as a saint uh, and, and put him in the canon of saints uh, rather than the canon of, of theologians. And that, of course, is, is a remapping of Wesley or, or a drawing Wesley into Billy's bigger project of, of right. canonical theism or canon and criterion, all of that work. Those are the, the categories are coming from that work. And, he, and he's locating Wesley or he's beginning to view him that way in the late 90s, early aughts, and then by the mid aughts, by the time he gives that presentation. I've never uh, heard so aughts used like that, but I love it. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I've only heard aughts referred to the 20th yeah. century. So I, I'm, if Jason Vickers does it, I'm doing it. <laughs> so I'll I think that, that's um, probably the big piece there uh, was, was the move to, to reconceptualize Wesley as a saint. What I can add here is, is that um, you know, people can decide whether they, they want to believe me or not. You know, um, when it comes to the future, any, any future Methodist church, no, well, two things. Number one, he absolutely thought that Dick Heitzenrider had the better historical argument in the debate with Odin over the doctrinal standards in the present Methodist Church, namely that they do not include Wesley's sermons and notes. Uh, Billy really thought that that Heitzenrider actually had the the better historical argument. Now, whether there are other arguments that might bring sermons and notes back in as doctrinal standards, that's another matter. But uh, with respect to any future Methodist church, he and I talked about this quite a bit, and he was very drawn to the idea of there being kind of a, a, a list of, he liked, he liked lists, right? Canons. He wants lots of canons. Um, and he wants a, a, a canon of works that, that are normative for spiritual direction and formation. And he thought that the sermons belonged there rather than on a list of 
standard doctrines or doctrinal materials where he wanted at the head of that list the Nicene Creed. And then we could, then I think he was open to some options on, say, the Articles of Religion, the Confession of Faith, and what you do with that kind of material. But he certainly thought that that the sermons, I mean, he, he would be very emphatic about this, that he did not think that Wesley's sermons should be seen as standards of doctrine. Uh, I mean, because especially if one of the functions of doctrinal standards is, you know, as a kind of a, a test of orthodoxy on which, say, clergy could be brought up on charges. So, like, which sermons? And, you know, and, and they just thought that was great. Disagreements they have internally. Yes, and then and then to put it on the same level with the creed, he just thought the, these yeah. are just not the same. This is not the same kind of material. I think he was basically right about that. Now, whether or not people in in any future iteration of the Methodist Church, you know, will actually take those arguments seriously, remains to be seen. Yeah, that's good. Anybody want to add anything on the Wesley study front? I mean, everybody. He made a major contribution to the debate over the um, quadrilateral, of course. Right. Um, another major piece he contributed there that was significant. Yeah. And I think Jason's right, though. That's reading Wesley as ascetic, ascetic theologian. I think that's a term he liked to use, an ascetic theologian, which is sort of a spiritual master like a, like a Abba. And while I'm on that, with justice, those of you who you haven't even heard of Billy Abraham until this podcast, and hopefully you've hung in there with us this far, but it, I encourage you like to go to his book. Justice brings up a point, and this is like something that fleshes itself out in my denomination pretty regularly. People go to the Wesleyan quadrilateral quickly and uh, inappropriately, I'll say, and often it moves against the direction of the faith once for all delivered to the saints, let's just say. And so um, Billy Abraham was a, a fierce advocate against it. And his, I'll say, go to his book, Waking Up from Doctrinal Amnesia, just for a quick summary of where he was. Or you, you could probably even YouTube Billy Abraham, Wesleyan Quadrilateral, and get something on that. I think you'd get a lot of answers. Everybody's shaking their head. So hopefully, if you if you say something I disagree with, let me know. David, I, I didn't mean to cut you off there. It looked like you're about to say something about Wesley studies. No, I, I was going to say, I think that if you read the proposed section one of the discipline for the global Methodist church, there is no quadrilateral. There is no, nothing like our theological task in the United Methodist book of discipline, which I'm quite pleased with. Amen. And, and <laughs> I, um, I think that that is in a way a tribute to Billy's influence upon this movement that to use the quad, especially in the way that it came into the Book of Discipline in 1972 as a way of um, encoding doctrinal pluralism into the life of the church. Um, that was just a devastating, that was a slow acting poison for United Methodism and we're seeing its effects now. Yeah. But Maybe another outline area, that real quick. What that just a quick outline of what that, of how that happens. I alluded to it. Maybe we could just clue people in like a, I mean, so so basically, you know, we have the first restrictive rule, which which protects the articles of religion and confession of faith, but they and they, they couldn't do away with these. But what they did was they then put in this section called our theological task with these four resources, scripture, tradition, reason and experience. And they said none of these can be defined unambiguously. And what defines us as Methodists is a commitment to the on and they use the word theologizing so the <laughs> ongoing process of theologizing 
using these four resources uh, with with no not even a nod to the primacy of scripture until 1988. So you use these four resources and and the um, the doctrinal standards, the Articles of Religion and Confession of Faith sort of become landmarks, but they are not standards anymore. And so they, they couldn't get rid of these doctrinal standards, but they undermined them so that they didn't carry any weight in the life of the church. That's what happened in 72. They're landmarks in the sense that like the old withered out shell station in an abandoned town in middle of Oklahoma is a landmark, you know. <laughs> Turn left. Yeah, yeah. a great yeah. analogy, Justice, yeah. And so, um, yeah, and so Billy understood how damaging that was to the core of Methodist identity and theology and didn't win the day within the United Methodist Church, but I think with the formation of the global Methodist Church, his influence will be um, quite significant. The other thing I wanted to say, though, about Wesley studies is um, and under I, I, an area that I wish he had written more in is epistemology and Methodism. And I remember reading some things um, that he wrote about epistemology and the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Yes. For Wesley, this was an important concept, the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, assurance yes. of salvation. And, and what did exactly happen to Aldersgate? Right. Philosophically speaking, theologically speaking. And this is an area that I think warrants greater explan uh, exploration by people who are trained in this area. I mean, this is not my area of training, but someone like Jason or Justice would, would be quite well suited to write about uh, epistemology and the inner witness of the Holy Spirit and to develop um, some particularly Methodist Wesleyan epistemological distinctives. I think that Billy would like that. And I think that he would find that um, helpful for the life of the church. You know, the, the course, little bits yeah. of start to that is that Aldersgate to Athens, the Oxford book. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's just so short. It just needs more. It needs more time. But I loved how in that book, he's able to bring in, like, bring Wesley into conversation with Plantinga and these type of things. Jason, you're smiling a lot there. You want to jump in there? Oh, no. I was just thinking that when you said it was short and needed more time, I, for, for some reason, what popped into my head is that Billy Abraham was the Chris Stapleton of theology, right? Like brilliant, you know, but but often you kind of go, wait a minute, that song only lasted two minutes. Like, <laughs> you need to finish writing it, you know? <laughs> yeah. I was thinking, you know, one, th one thing that he, he, that's still left to be digested, I think, by the tradition is also, this is related, his work on pneumatology and on ecclesiology which he wrote a lot of, I think, very insightful papers over the last 10 years on those two topics. Um, but I don't think he ever delivered really a, a, a full length um, account of what he was thinking there. It's undergirds a lot of what you see, for instance, in, um, in the four volume set, and especially comes through volume three of his four volume set, I think that's the that's the book that will, should have a, a long legacy um, that we should we should hope for because that really is a systematic theology and he, la he lays out there in that third volume um and some of the key moves there are there but i think that's another area where you know i was just thinking what what part of his his legacy was what were the books i was hoping he'd write someday you know i wanted to read him something write something on the church and something on the on the spirit in an explicit manner yeah it would have been great to have. 
That's great. Um, any uh, last thoughts on uh, no, Wesley stuff? I, I do want to say that I think um, another contribution he made was he was very concerned to bring Methodism into conversation with a broader canonical tradition of the church. Right. I mean, his whole canonical theism project was, in my opinion, his most distinctive theological contribution. Yeah. Do we all and, agree on that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Keep going. Keep going, David. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. And of course, Billy was Methodist to the core, and he was he was an apologist for Methodism. But at the same time, he didn't want Methodists to deprive themselves of the riches of the church right. that have come down right. to us through the centuries. And I think he did feel that in some ways, Protestants in, in general, but, but also Methodists specifically, impoverished themselves by their refusal to engage with the breadth of the canonical tradition. And he was trying to to help us to see what was there. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's totally right. And I and it it sort of um was something that that in in a few cases even got him into trouble with fellow conservative Methodists, you know, who it I mean it it would it cost him um his his Protestant bona fides, uh, you know, my my colleague Ken Collins is is a good example of this. I mean, he wrote sure. just a, a scathing kind of critique of the theses that are at the beginning of the canonical theism volume uh, that, that was either published in the Wesleyan Theological Journal yeah. or the Asbury Theological Journal. I can't remember which one. The right Asbury now. Journal. Uh, the Asbury Journal, and the Billy Billy wrote a response to it. Um, but but I'm simply bringing that up just to say that that for uh, for many people uh the canonical theism project insofar as it pulled uh saints and icons and uh, um you know the the possibility of sacraments beyond baptism and eucharist you know the, these kind of things into the conversation or, or at least asked for them to be taken seriously and considered um, was just uh, unacceptable, and I, I think there were people that thought Billy had had sort of, you know, lost his way or should go east, you know, should should leave Methodism. He was told on more than one occasion that he should just that he, he really was no longer a Methodist because of the Canonical Theism Project, um, which you know is um, well. Let's just say that that the I do think that the Canonical Theism Project could be what you could do if we're talking about unfinished business work that yeah. could be done is you could take the basic concepts and categories there and and sort of read the history of Methodism uh, in in the light of those concepts and categories. Who are the saints of the of the Methodist tradition, right, uh, and so forth. I would love to go on further about this, but we're running out of time. I want to give folks a chance to close out a little bit. And, you know, I, this is, this was somebody, uh, people in my audience, like who, who saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. You know, I didn't see myself as a, as a scholar, as a preacher, a Salvation Army officer. And I, you know, I love, I love being, I love being a Salvation Army officer, but he, he, kind of used his debating skills on me <laughs> uh, and just pushed me to think in a different way. And, and then, then what kind of, I think has won the day, won the day for me was that my own tradition, this, and this goes right along with what you're all saying. So to hear you say this confirms this, 
had something to offer, something to offer the broad, like the, the, the Salvation Army in its rough, rugged, gritty tradition had something to offer the wider, not just, not just the evangelical Wesleyan world, but to the church as a whole. And so he was saying, who else is going to do that? And, and you know, Mr. Salvation Army, who else is going to do that? Point at me in my Salvation Army uniform. So like, I'm just, and I, and Jason, you wrote something that was, it was interesting to me talking about your laugh in the last six months, your time with them. I was, I hadn't heard from him for a while. And then just 24 hours before he died, I had a letter from him. And it was just a sweet letter kind of reflect on where I am. And then he's, he was going to be doing this project, which I'm disappointed isn't going to happen where he was going to be doing a paper in DC, uh, theological defense of the United States, which I'm sorry, we don't have time to talk about that, but, um, and it was just a, a sweet way that I was able to have this conclusion to my time with him as, as we experience time right now. Uh, let's, so I just like to have folks, um, talk about that, uh, talk, just close out maybe on your closing reflections on him and maybe some of your last interactions with him or whatever you'd like to share. Let's give everybody a chance. Jason, you ready? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, maybe the, the, uh, the thing that is probably stuck with me the most in terms of my last conversations with Billy, um, when he was here at our home in June, um, he was moving, uh, on the one hand, he had a work he was still planning to do, but, but he was moving with, with grace into a bit of a semi-retirement mode, uh, still working, but, um, it was the most relaxed I'd seen him. Uh, and, and it was actually really enjoyable to see him, uh, relaxed and, 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 uh, there was just a certain peacefulness about him at the time. The, but the thing that, that, stuck out to me and sticks out to me now uh, was his his commitment to his what I've been calling his missionary teaching and he was very concerned about that that he said multiple times that week that he couldn't keep doing it all and that some of the rest of us were going to have to pick up some of that work and and get committed to helping the church in places like Romania and Kazakhstan and Costa Rica. You know, I know David's got a lot of work going on in Cuba and helping down there. And, and in that sense, that's part of Billy's legacy. And I think that if, if Billy um, cared very deeply about anything toward the end of his life, it was the, the kind of uh, the, the church, you know, around the world, but especially in places where it was not yet well established, where it was still vulnerable, and where it needed good teaching and good training. And I think he was very committed to that he, for decades. Uh, and that's the one thing that I think he, he really was, he was more worried about that in some ways than, than the future of Methodism. Interesting. David, yeah. you have a closing thought? Well, I do agree with this. And I think that Um, For those of us who were formed in such profound ways by Billy, um, the international component is going to be increasingly important. We just can't ignore this. Yeah. And um, the work that he did in Eastern Europe, um, you know, the work that um, he was beginning to do in Costa Rica, uh, this kind of work has to continue. And it's not going to be okay uh, for professors to, to 
function for professors in this tradition to function in the way in which we have functioned in the past. I mean, that, that seminaries are now training missionaries uh, to go into post-Christian America and to engage the global church in ways that we haven't had to do before. Um, Billy, the thing about Billy was he could, he was, he was such a rigorous intellect, but he also uh, loved his students. Yeah. And um, he mentored them and he invested, he mentored us and invested in us and gave of his time and shared his life with us. And again, I, you know, I've come to think of my own vocation in a lot of ways, not as simply an imparter of knowledge anymore, but as, but in this role of mentoring people and walking alongside them and helping them to grow up in faith. And a lot of that is because of his example. Yeah. And so um, I miss him. Yeah. I'm still really, really grieving his death. And I wish he was here. Yeah. But I'm so thankful that I knew him. Yeah. Praise the Lord. Thanks for sharing that, David. Justice? I was thinking, uh, two things come to my mind. One is, I remember, I think I've told some people this, that the first WCA meeting um, was in Chicago, maybe. And um, I just remember I, I went up there with you know a couple of friends for, for a day, maybe. And I remember running into Billy in the hallway. And he really, he really, felt as if he had done the kind of gritty work he he was called to do and his generation was called to do um, to clear the table so that another generation could come along and, and build something um, and i think he was i mean he was going to have his say in what he thought that should be but but he really was at peace at that part of his life it seemed to me um, I, his tone from that point forward was different um, and so i think that that so it was a huge labor that he he lived in peace with from that point forward. The other thing was I I was just thinking about uh, my last interaction with him in person was the same as Jason's. It was actually at Jason's house, and I remember him. The thing I was just thinking about was just before we went to your house, Jason, uh, that evening, we um he gave a presentation to a group of people uh, at Asbury. Oh, and man. and man, this thing it was just it was vintage billy i mean it was you know lobbing dynamite here lobbing dynamite there you know and just like firing shots across every i mean and it had this it he had this comprehensive vision of how things work and ought to go together and what his constructive vision um for how theology should be done and what the next step in the thinking through this stuff should be and he was ready to kind of go to bat, even to the point of, of arguing that Augustine was dead wrong and everyone's been seeing the Augustine Pelagian controversy wrongly uh, since then. I mean, it was that type of stuff that he was not afraid to just kind of jump in and he was still just hammering there. Um, and that's that'll, that, that'll always, you know, that will always live on as kind of a glimpse of, of who this, this kind of raucous character was in certain ways. <laughs> I don't know, I mean, he was, he was a bull in a china shop uh intellectually that's just kind of how he operated and, and he, he he just he would he would just turn up 
the ground, you know, and just leave leave stuff laying there for other people to come clean up and 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 make good use of, basically, as a mind that he was always doing that. And even at the end, you know, I think he was still just just turning stuff up, you know. Yeah. yeah can I just well, tack yeah, on yeah, one yeah. last thing to to again? I'm going to footnote David here and just say that that I think David's exactly right. That um, of course we miss him, uh, but. You know, the thing I, I, I find myself thinking now, like David, is that, um, you know, one of the great gifts uh, in my life was that I got to be friends with Billy Abraham and he was a blessing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, we are blessed and, and I'm thankful for you all and the witness that you have in the life of the church and through your own scholarship. We'll try and link as I'll try and link as best I can to some of your works and um, the way God's using you and with gratitude in our hearts for this mentor who took time for us. And maybe as you're listening to this, there's somebody, you know, you, you need to take some time with, um, do it. And we trust that the Holy spirit is at work through this. And, um, with thanks in our hearts for the man that Billy Abraham was, and we look forward to our future with him as well. Thank you all for being with me and, and joining me on this podcast. God bless you. Well, we have an extra bonus edition here, uh, tacking on to the end of the More to Story podcast, where we're remembering the legacy of Dr. Billy Abraham. And he wasn't able to get on the last call, but I'm delighted to have on the podcast with me somebody I admire a lot, Dr. Jerry Walls, who teaches at Houston Baptist University. Jerry, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andy. Great to be here. Well, I know you had a, a, a relationship that was different from the other guys that I talked to in the last hour. Um, who were all students, like I was a student of Billy Abraham, but you have functioned as a philosophical peer, like a, a peer in the academy with him. But I, I'd love for you just to highlight the nature of your relationship with Billy and what he meant to you before we talk about his legacy. Yeah, well, um, Billy was in a way as a mentor to me too. Um, mm -hmm. I first met him uh, several years ago uh, at a Wesleyan Theological Society meeting at Asbury Seminary when he was pretty much fresh out of graduate school. Um, I was pastoring a church in, in Ohio at the time. I had graduated already from seminary and, and the like, and um, I went to the Western Theological Society with my then father-in-law, and uh, hmm. he was one of these guys who, who never wanted to be late. He, he insisted, you know, that, that we, need, we need to get up early in the morning so we can be there for the early sessions, you know, and I wasn't that keen on getting up at four or five o'clock in the morning, but he insisted <laughs> on it. <laughs> we got up, you know, really early and wound our ways, you know, through the hills of Southern Ohio down, down to Wilmore, Kentucky. And uh, anyway, there was this, there was this young guy on the program named William J. Abraham, who was responding to a prominent systematic theologian in, in the Wesleyan tradition. And, um, uh, you know, he got up and, and gave this response, and he's, you know, he's speaking in this Irish accent, which was kind of interesting in its own right, but he really caught my attention when he mentioned that he had studied analytic philosophy at Oxford, and um, I had studied analytic philosophy at, at Yale Divinity School with Paul Homer, and, and I was really interested in that as well. So my ears really perked up, and uh, I paid really close attention uh, to, to, to his address after that. And it was really interesting, Andy. I mean, um, typically at these meetings, you know, the, the, the critic, the responder gets up and thanks the person for the paper and says it's a wonderful paper and all this stuff. And then offers maybe a few comments, you know, maybe a few general criticisms. Well, Abraham didn't do that at all. I mean, 
he didn't get up and say what a great prisoner it was. <laughs> But he offered a very sharp critique of it. And I remember at the very end of it, he said something about maybe at this point you'll think I might agree with him, but I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint you. you So so he just just disagreed with it all the way. And I was just totally, you know, like, wow, this this is this is amazing. This is remarkable. So, you know, then the rest of the story is that that night there was a banquet and um we got there a few minutes early, and lo and behold, Billy Abraham was there also with, with Bob Lyon, who taught New Testament at Asbury at the time. Mm-hmm. And I started chatting with him, and um, you know, they uh, invited us to sit with him. And so I, I really got to talk to him and found out that the kind of things he was interested in, in, in analytic philosophy and uh, the like, were many of the things I was interested in. So we hit it really, you know, we just hit it off, and he asked me to send him a couple of papers I was in writing about. Um, you know, and I sent them to them and he wrote back these very gracious, affirming words, you know, you, you've got to go to graduate school, <laughs> you know, you yeah. must go study philosophy, you know, kind of a thing, which was very encouraging. Yeah. And uh, I did, I ended up going to Notre Dame and doing my PhD in philosophy. And any, any rate, Bill and I, uh, you know, became fast friends, uh, at, at that meeting. And, uh, so that, that's kind of the story of how, how our friendship began at any rate. Yeah. yeah, I'd love to jump. I want to. I know you all did work together and interacted at the Notre Dame programs, that kind of thing. But the, even just highlighting this, the role and the place of analytic philosophy, um, you know, as opposed to like a continental tradition, there is something like, you know, I, and this was something that we talked about on the other podcast as well in the last hour, where we highlighted the way he was still able to engage those on the other side who maybe came from more of the, the French type of traditions. But what, at particular, could you just summarize what the analect tradition is like um, for people who don't know what we're, what we're talking about? Yeah, the analytic philo- philosophical tradition, you know, is based on the idea of analysis. And the idea is that you argue carefully, you identify premises, you show how conclusions follow uh, and the like, that there's a rigorous kind of an attempt to, to argue for something. Uh, again, one in which you, you lay out your premises, you defend your premises, you show how your conclusion follows from the premises, either deductively or with some degree of probability. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the important thing is just that, that it, it's a style of argument, it's a style of reasoning, it's a style of doing philosophy, um, you know, that, that really came into, into its own in the 20th century. Uh, particularly, but uh, a lot of the a lot of the great philosophers, you know, previous uh, to the 20th century, argued in this way, argued carefully, argued rigorously, uh, and so on. So that's the key thing that that sets the analytic tradition apart is this this emphasis on careful argument, uh, the, the emphasis upon showing how your conclusion follows, defending it rationally, defending it with premises, evidence, and and so on. So. Yeah, you know the 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 caricature, I suppose, you know, would be that much of the the um, the continental tradition, by contrast, is much more woolly and fuzzy, and and does not argue with the same kind of rigor and clarity. So, that's at least the broad difference. Yeah, that's the great. Tradition. And that's a lot of what's come up in 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 seeing people's remembrances on Facebook or their the Firebrand put out a series of articles. I was able to write one, and that was you know my own tradition. My my experiences with Billy Abraham was such that was 
immediately entering into that analytic process and where I I thought that we were on the, you know, I went there, you know, Asbury seminary student coming to SMU, you know, I I read Billy Abraham and and I sat down in his office. He challenged my very Christianity right to the bones. I mean, I was just, and I I thought I was just completely destroyed. (laughs) How did you challenge your Christianity? I'm curious to hear that. Oh, well, so, and, and I'll be interested. Uh, so in, in my tradition, the Salvation Army, we moved to a place in 1883 to not practice the sacraments. And so Billy wow. realized that I hadn't been baptized. And so that's, that's how he called my, and so he wanted to see if I could defend myself. And, and interesting enough, like he had a lot of sympathy, even though a high sacramentalist and somebody who would probably even move beyond the traditional Protestant sacraments, he was somebody who, uh, uh, because of his emphasis on the creeds, you know, looks at the scripture, lack of sometimes lack of clarity, a certain degree on like how sacraments are to be performed. Like he had some room for me, but he wanted to see me. He made me sweat, sweat it out to defend my salvation. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. Yeah. He, he loved, he loved to go on the offense like that, didn't he? Yeah. And I think that that's, that's come up consistently, even from those who would be, uh, you know, I might even say outside the bounds of Orthodox Christianity, um, he was still able to engage them and, and did it. I don't, I don't even have the right words to describe it in a loving, uh, uh, loving is not the right word, but com- compassionate way. I mean, what, do you agree with what I'm saying? Do, right. You know what I'm saying? Can you help me think about that? There was always that twinkle. There was that, that, there was that twinkle in his eye. He did it with charm. He, he, he did it in a way that he showed you he loved you. He cared about you. Even when, you know, he, he went uh, on, you know, a, a pretty vigorous attack, he still respected you as a person and had that twinkle in his eye. Yeah, that's it. And, and of course, the accent just helped with that, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that Irish accent that just that just brushes all offense away, right? It cleanses yeah. it all away. <laughs> so I'd love for you to, to think about, and it might be more kind of like the philosophical tradition, too, because, you know, he... He, like you, you know, like kind of has worked in, in other fields like uh, Wesley studies, um, systematic theology, uh, but he, ca- he come, came at things through this analytic tradition. And I would love for you to just talk about his academic legacy, the, the things that he's leaving, like how, how the academy and the, the life of the church is richer because of the work he did. Yeah, well, I mean, the very first uh, book that he wrote, I remember, you know, when I met him at that Western Theological Society meeting, you know, he, he mentioned that he had a book coming out, you know, Divine Inspiration of Holy Scripture, coming out from Oxford University Press. And of course, I was I was very uh, impressed to hear that. So I got the book and read it immediately. And uh, that was a book that uh, caused a lot of controversy within the evangelical movement because, you know, he was defending a view of inspiration that distinguished it from the inerrancy tradition uh, and the like, and trying to make sense of exactly what is involved in God inspiring scripture. And he argued that so what actually is going on in, in, in much, uh, much of the evangelical tradition is an implicit uh, assumption that God dictated the Bible, that, that essentially what they mean by inspiration is dictation. And he argued against that uh, and tried to still make a case for how you can have a substantial view of God inspiring, inspiring scripture. 
And uh, then he had a book uh, uh, on Revelation that came out after that, which I think was was his uh, based on his doctoral dissertation. That was a powerful defense of, of how God has revealed Himself. Uh, and again, taking divine action very seriously. Uh, the the, uh, the recent thing that he did at, um, at Notre Dame, uh, you know, th- that he started out and you know started out planning to write one volume on on divine action. And ended up writing four volumes, you know, uh, yeah. uh, on action. Uh, that, that's a that's a very that's a very significant piece of work. And uh, you know, just the, the the fourth volume was just published uh, just this year, I believe. So he just completed that. Um, you know, um, he did a, a big book. I'm trying to remember what what, what the big book was about. Um, did one on canon and criterion. Right. Um, that was that was a very important that was a very important work. That's probably his most significant academic volume. This is like a 500 page uh, tome uh, in which in which he he makes the case that there's a difference between canon and and criterion in in in, in theology. And a lot of people have um, have taken the word canon, you know, to to mean it's um, uh, it, it's a, it's a kind of a standard. A rational standard, and he simply said the word canon means a list. It's a list of authoritative writings, and um, you know he traced that through history, starting clear back with the fathers, clear up to the modern day feminists, and pointed out how the confusion between canon and criterion has um, has uh, caused a lot of grief in, in in theology. So that's that's a really important work. The thing about Abraham, you know, is this. I mean. He, he did a lot of lectures. He did a lot of invited um, presentations, and he would get all fired up. And next thing you know, he had another little book coming out about it. You know, so in addition to in addition to his major works, he had a lot of shorter things where he, you know, just got kind of a bee under his bonnet and got fired up about something and and wrote a little book about it. So it was a really uh, a remarkable collection of, of writings. You know, like I say, those those. First couple of volumes on on divine inspiration, divine revelation, canon criterion, which was a major academic work, and then the right. four volume work that I just mentioned, divine action, uh, and the like. That that's a major academic work. But he also had lots of other books in which he addressed various ecclesiastical issues, issues that arose in the church, political issues. He had he had a keen interest in politics and and, and the like. So. Um, the man, the man had quite a diverse body of literature, uh, all of which was targeted, all of which was aimed at some important issue uh, in the church. Now, how did he respond to you about um, with your work on purgatory? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting. Um, I, I was at Notre Dame uh, and as a center, as a as a fellow in the Center for Philosophy of Religion. Uh, I'd been there one year, and then Billy came, uh, and so I, I was there a second year when he and I were both there, and we shared an apartment that year, and that's when he started doing the research for his work on divine action. And again, he was planning to write one volume, and he'd only been at Notre Dame in like a month, and he got all fired up and and realized, gosh, it, what I intended to be one volume is going to take four volumes. That turned out to turn out yeah. to be a much bigger one than he expected. Well, in the meantime. I was there working on the Doctrine of Purgatory, which is the third volume in my trilogy. I've got a book on hell, I've got a book on heaven, and then I then I did the book on purgatory. 
you know, the hell, the logic of damnation, heaven, the logic of eternal joy, and purgatory, the logic of total transformation. Well, I got to say, uh, even though Billy was very kind to write a blurb for that book, and he he blurbed a number of my books, he did not did not believe in the doctrine of purgatory. Um, he he just didn't didn't buy it. So, uh, in fact, uh, he mentioned that in his little systematic theology, which is the third volume of that four-volume work on divine agency, divine action. The third volume is a little kind of a systematic theology, and uh, he makes it very clear that he does not accept the doctrine of purgatory. So didn't convince him on that one, but uh, we had lots of interesting discussions about it, like we did many, many issues, but uh, uh, his uh, his uh, Northern Irish Protestantism wouldn't, wouldn't accept the idea of <laughs> And of course, mine is, mine is a Protestant version of purgatory. And of That's course, right. C.S. Lewis, who also was a Northern Irishman, you know, had the same kind of a kind of a of a background, who was a Northern Irish Protestant. C.S. Lewis did affirm the doctrine of purgatory, which which I uh, point out uh, and the like. But um, uh, Abraham did not swallow that one. I, uh, <laughs> I did not him to buy that one. You told a story, and I think this will tie in. One of the things that we talked about yesterday, we it, it came up as we are. It wasn't what I was expecting in the conversation, but we we mentioned his little book. I think you wrote a blurb for it too. The Alder's Gate to Athens is kind of look at the philosophical uh, assumptions in John Wesley's theology, and uh, there's some interesting uh, things there. And, and I I appreciated how he was able to engage Alvin Plantinga's arguments with um, basic Christian beliefs and. Uh, in kind of seeing some of that in Wesley. I think there's something interesting though too. You told a funny story thinking about planning a, uh, and you'd be at Notre Dame where you you were actually able to introduce. I introduced him, uh, yeah. Billy, Billy came there. He had just published his philosophy of religion textbook, and which okay. I used by the way, teaching uh, my introduction to philosophy of religion course. That was my, my textbook for many years. Anyway, he had just published it and um, he had criticized Alvin Plantinga in there, and in fact, he had called him a fideist, you know, which is the yeah. idea that, you know, you, you, you just base faith on, you know, that doesn't require doesn't require rational support. Uh, faith and reason are, are sort of at odds, or, or at least not linked up the way we often think they are. Well, anyway, Billy was there, and, and uh, he asked me, uh, could I introduce him to Alvin Plantinga? I said, sure. So. We walked over to Alvin Plantinga's office, you know, and um, went in and introduced Plantinga and Abraham and had a nice mutual exchange, nice to meet you kind of thing. And I said, by the way, Professor Plantinga, this is a guy that just called you a phidias. And I mentioned <laughs> that Billy had called him a phidias in his philosophy of religion text. And Plantinga says, well, Billy, why do you think I'm a phidias? <laughs> uh, Billy tries to tell him why he thinks he's a phidias, and Plantinga doesn't take so kindly to that, and so it became a rather animated uh, conversation. And of course, I just sat there and watched it. And it was a fascinating exchange to see the see the two two arguing. Uh, so I, I, you know, it's kind of a good idea sometimes to start arguments because interesting uh, things happen when people argue about important issues, and that was. That was one such uh, episode in um, in my observation of Billy Abraham. <laughs> Amen. Well, I think that that's a, that's a really nice summary too. This idea, like interesting things can happen when we get into arguments, and uh, like, yeah, 
Yes, and and yeah, a lot of people have a have a negative reaction. You know, the word argument, you know, implies you're mad at each other. Whereas in philosophy, uh, argument is simply a reasoned presentation of ideas. So philosophers are all about argument. Again, this goes back to the, um, you know, the analytic continental kind of a divide. I mean, analytic philosophers are concerned very much with clear arguments and. Uh, right. So Plantinga and Abraham were arguing, but it wasn't like a personal kind of a thing. It was animated. They were both lively, you know, uh, ex- you know they were both uh, very much uh, involved in the discussion. It was a very lively exchange, but it wasn't like any personal animosity, anything like that. It was rather simply uh, they were both pursuing the truth, and it was very fascinating to see two two significant philosophers pursuing the truth and engaging in argument and saying, yeah. what's your premise? Conclusion: Why do you think this? You know, yeah, yeah, great. I, I saw that at Notre Dame all the time, and uh, it's a wonderful legacy to see argument at its best. It's a the classic liberal tradition in the sense of the you know the the bro, the proper understanding of that word. And uh, exactly. unfortunately, our society just doesn't have that anymore. Like, if you disagree, then exactly. you're canceled. Exactly. Yeah. And, and argument just means some kind of an emotional reaction in which you, you know, go off on somebody uh, in anger or something like that. But that's not what argument is in the classic tradition or the classic sense of the word at all. We need to be good at art. We need to get back to being able to argue uh, responsibly and respectfully. That's a, that's critical for any kind of uh, society in which truth is allowed to function. Particularly in a place where, where people are functioning in an educational environment and scholarly environment. I, mean, I can think of like, you very much functioned in that way um, in, my, in my life too. I think of times like um, where it, it seemed like a, a whole a whole faculty might've been opposed to you with defending the uh, dualism as it relates to human constitution. And um, I just loved, and I, I remember being so challenged that moment, like, okay, here's the people I admire on multiple sides. And but like you stand up and being willing to re- reasonably do that and with humor. And, and that's why I saw in Billy too. So I kind of saw this continuity between my seminary education and doctoral work. I just loved, I, I, and I learned, like, I didn't know where I was at the moment, but because of the reason arguments, like, well, I just want you to know, Jerry, I'm fully a dualist. <laughs> now, well, yeah. it's just, dualism, go ahead. dualism is uh, what has been the majority position, I think, in the Christian tradition. I think it's in the Bible as well. Uh, yeah. Again, it's not Platonic dualism in the sense that the body is degraded or, or considered to be inferior, but it is the idea that a person is composed of these two distinct substances, uh, the, the, the mental and the physical, and the two interact with each other. And um, yeah, I think uh, the, the Christian tradition clearly teaches the soul continues to survive after the death of the body, between the death and resurrection. Of course, you know, a soul. Without a body, is a damaged person. It's not a complete person, but uh, it will be again at the resurrection. Amen. Yeah, and, and I, I just love that tradition that you're. And I just think of like how thankful I am that I've been around people who are willing to argue in the broad liberal tradition, like you and Billy have done at, at like a, at another level, you know, for me. And I, I admire you. Admired you both, and um, I thank God for the way that you know, he's used you and, and particularly in this context, I'll just give you one more opportunity to say anything else you'd like to say about Billy, but we're so thankful for his witness and what it means to the life of the church and the academy as a whole. So any, any closing thoughts about Billy? 
Well, uh, again, uh, uh, I think it's important to recognize that the man was a man of, of deep piety. Um, yeah. You know, he loved God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he prayed as naturally as he argued philosophy. I mean, in the year that I spent living with him, that was one of the things I observed was just how naturally and easily he talked about praying to God. He prayed to God uh, and the like. So um, uh, that's that's what I, I will always remember about Billy Abraham. Is he, was, he was a man who loved God with his heart, soul, uh, his mind, and his strength. And uh, he was, he was a, a model uh, Christian in that regard. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Jerry, for taking some time with us and uh, helping us reflect upon this person who's made such a deep impact. So, my pleasure, my pleasure. I enjoyed it. Yeah, God bless you. We'll be in touch.